every now and then when I arrive home from the office, my wife and I will talk about how the day is went and what's happened. And on occasion, she will say this to me. She'll say, I have good news and bad news. Which do you want to hear first? I fall for it every time. I say, well, the good news, of course. I mean, who doesn't want to hear the good news first? And then she looks at me and says, I don't have any good news. <laughs> now, that's mildly humorous, been borderline cruel. <laughs> but it's taken me a long time to figure out that it's ingenious. Because it prepares me for the bad news. You know, I mean, okay, there's no good news. Okay, that's, that's a disappointment. But, uh, you know... I handled that. Maybe I can handle the next thing, which is the bad news, right? <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. That's one of those, that's one of them life things, you know, I don't know. It, it plays on my mind, but, uh, it always turns out good. Now, this morning, I want to give you some good news and some bad news. But first, I want to assure you that I really do have good news. In fact, I have the absolute best news. Anyone could ever hear the ultimate good news. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Oh my, what better news could that possibly be? We're going to talk about that this morning. Oh, we'll get to the bad news too, but I want to focus on, concentrate on, and talk about mainly this morning the good news. Now we know that the word gospel means good news in the original language. And Paul, in his words in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, or the good news, which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. Well, we've received the good news. We stand in the good news. But sometimes we just need to hear it again. For it is, and always will be, good news. And more in more ways than you can ever imagine. But let's go back, and let's talk about the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate good news for mankind. His death and His resurrection. That's what we celebrate here on Easter Sunday. My, my, last year we weren't able to meet. How disappointing that was. And uh, I said, well, we'll just have Easter whenever things return to normal. Well, it's not normal yet. And we're having Easter anyway, because it's time that we celebrate the Lord's resurrection. The ultimate good news. Well, the question uh, will arise as we contemplate this. In what way is his death and resurrection the ultimate good news? Now, there's two aspects of this that I want you to... Look at with me. Now, we're going to be looking at the actual historical narrative, Matthew 27 and 28. And I cannot take time to deal with every verse. I'd like to do that. We cannot do that on this occasion. So uh, we're going to try to project a lot of verses that I'm going to focus on on the screen. Uh, I encourage you to follow along in your Bible and maybe fill in uh, some of the parts in between. But in what way is Christ's death and resurrection the ultimate good news for mankind? Well, first of all, his death made payment 
for mankind's sin. His death made payment for mankind's sin. Now, the first thing we need to understand is that we're sinners. There, there is sin to be paid for. And that all men are sinners. Now, there are numerous examples here in our text this morning. Let's begin with Judas. Judas, who betrayed him, is so remorseful that he returns the 30 pieces of silver, the payment that was made to him for betraying the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 4 of chapter 27, he returns saying this, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Well, Judas was remorseful. He wasn't repentant. He never trusted Christ for salvation. He never received forgiveness of his sins, but he was still remorseful for what he did. He betrayed innocent blood. There is no greater sin, perhaps, than the sin that Judas committed when he did that. And of course, he could not live with the guilt and took his own life as a result. Pilate is the next example in chapter 27 and verse 23. For the last of those officials that officiated at his trials, the Roman governor Pilate examined him and found no fault in him at all. But yet he condemned him nonetheless, verse 23. And the governor said, why? In other words, why should I condemn him? For that's what the Jews demanded. Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. And that is what Pilate did, because he was more concerned about his position. He was more concerned about pleasing Caesar and making sure there was no uprising of any kind. He condemned a man he knew was innocent. Well, the Jewish religious leaders, go back to chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. They too knew he was innocent of any capital offense. In fact, they struggled to even find a reason to condemn him aside from false testimony, and even that didn't stick. And they only brought him up on capital charges when he confessed that he indeed was the Messiah, which he did not deny, but affirmed. And we saw that last week or the week before. Finally, the Jewish people were complicit in demanding his death. In chapter 27, verse 25, after Pilate said, why, what fault is it, what, what, what evil has he done? And they said, crucify him. Pilate then washed his hands. Look at verse, uh, if you will, I don't think this is going to be on screen. Uh, verse 24, And Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was arising. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And then verse 25, which you do have on screen, says, And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. And it has been. It has been ever since. Jewish religious leaders plotted his death. The people were complicit in demanding his death. Not all the people. Many believed in Jesus. 
But there was a segment of the population that were gathered here that were anxious to condemn him. Then the soldiers abused him. Look at chapter 27, verse 29. The soldiers, uh, the Roman soldiers of Pilate, when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Yes, they verbally abused him, not to mention all the, the physical abuse they meted out, including the scourging, which many, many prisoners never recovered from. And then the religious leaders, along with the the two robbers that were crucified on either side of him, and even all the crowd that passed by mocked him and abused him in chapter 27 and verse 39. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. All these examples, over and over and over, we see it here. The evil of humanity, man's inhumanity to man. The culture in that day was just as corrupt as the culture in our day. Just as evil, just as depraved. And yes, it's the world we still live in. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, there is none righteous. None righteous. No, not even one. And that includes us. We might be better than a lot of people morally, but we're not righteous. Not righteous in God's standard. Romans 3.23 said all, says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They all have, all have sinned, past tense. We were born in sin. We all at the same time fall short, present tense. All the time we fall short. We are sinners through and through. We are all under the condemnation of sin. The impact of sin, the sentence, the result of sin is catastrophic. We just see a snatch of it here, beginning with Judas, as we've already mentioned in chapter 27, verses 3 to 5, who could not live with the guilt of what he had done. Then Pilate, beginning with his wife in chapter 27 and uh, verse 25, while he was sitting, that is Pilate, while he was sitting on the judgment seat of life, sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. We don't know if that was from the Lord. It may well be, certainly from her conscience. Her and Pilate had heard much of this man, no doubt, because of his position and all that had previously happened. And then Pilate himself. We read it earlier, verse 24. He washed his hands. He knew Jesus was innocent. He condemned him nonetheless. Now this is not in Scripture, but... Uh, there's a long-standing tradition that Pilate, in his latter years, his mind was so overwhelmed by the guilt of what he had done in this crucifixion that he spent his days washing his hands over and over and over. The impact of sin, it, it takes a toll on people. And of course, we know ultimately the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. And yet, in spite of the sinfulness of man... The Lord Jesus Christ died for a purpose. He died for our sins. Now, even though he died for sin, he was without sin. He was perfect. He was the sinless Son of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For uh, he made him, that is he, the Father, made him the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us. We're 
the benefits. We are the beneficiaries of what he did, dying for us. The price, the price, well, was death, spiritual death. Look at chapter 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Now, he was crucified at 9 a.m. The sixth hour is 12 noon. He had been on the cross for three hours. At the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And it was dark for three hours until 3 p.m. when he died, or thereabouts. This darkness is recorded historically by various writers across the spectrum of the ancient Roman Empire. It was not an eclipse. The moon would not be in the right position at this moment in the year to produce an eclipse. Even if it had been an eclipse, an eclipse doesn't last three hours. This was a divine commentary on what was happening. It was God's sign to mankind that their sin had produced what was happening here. God is the the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. In the new Jerusalem, there will be no need of the sun or the stars or the moon because God himself will be the light of it. But here, here, the light, in a sense, went out. God's saying something to man. It's an indication that he took our place in the darkness, in the judgment, in the awful, awful reality of sin. He, wasn't, he had no sin of his own. He was sinless. He was the God-man. He could not sin, but yet he was considered to be sin for us. He was put in that position. This is what he dreaded so much in the garden when he said, Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. He knew why he had came. He knew he came to die. He knew he came for this purpose. But he dreaded actually somehow being separated, the Son from the Father. We cannot comprehend what that entirely meant. Look at verse 46. And about the ninth hour, it was about three o'clock, after three hours of darkness, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And then, that's in, from the Hebrew, and then it's translated for us. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A direct quote from Psalm 22.1 where prophetically these words were revealed. Exactly what Jesus would say on the cross way, way, way back. In the days of David and by the hand of David. God the Father, in some sense, forsook the Son. There was a separation that came between Him, the Father, and Jesus, the Son. Now, the definition of death is separation from God. Those who who die without Christ, will spend eternity without Christ, separated from Christ, in outer darkness, suffering spiritual death after they have suffered physical death. Jesus Christ somehow, someway, tasted spiritual death at this moment. Some might ask, well, how could he possibly, in those minutes, moments, hours, whatever it was, how could he have possibly atoned for all the sins of all of mankind for all of the ages? 
But this was what the father had determined would be satisfying, which would satisfy the legal requirement that sin required death. And it was the value of who it was that gave up his life that made that so valuable and that the father was willing to accept as payment in our behalf. Yes, he had to die physically. He shed his blood. But he also tasted spiritual death in some sense, some, some loss of fellowship, some separation here from the Father. He was without sin, yet he paid the price of our sins as our substitute. Romans 5, 6 says, for when he, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For, in place of, as our substitute. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us in our place as our substitute. Now, the result of this death, which gave everybody the opportunity to come to Christ, which made the world savable, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. The results then, we see here in verse 51, of chapter 27. And behold, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Now the veil in the temple was a very heavy woven garment, a, a large, thick garment that separated the holy place where any of the priests could come and minister from the holy of holies where only the high priest could go on the day of atonement once a year to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. <clears throat> and so the holy of holies where the presence of God was manifest in the Shekinah glory, that place was secluded. But no longer. When Jesus died... God said, no longer will people need a priest to come to me. The garment, the curtain was split apart miraculously from top to bottom by God himself, saying that, look, the way to God is open. The debt has been paid. You are free to come to Christ. By the way, going back in our context just a moment, it says... over here where we need to be. It says that about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And that's where he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was the fourth statement that he had made on that cross. The first three came in the first three hours. After this, he said, according, and it's not in Matthew, but according to John 19, 28, he said, I thirst which I think is a strong message and indication. He said that to help us understand that he was human. He was one of us. Oh, he was God as well. He was the God man. He's both fully God and fully human, not any less God because he was human, but he took upon himself human flesh. And he suffered in our place as the only perfect human that ever lived. He, he, he endured the punishment, our punishment. But after he said, I thirst, according to John chapter 19, verse 30, he said this, he said, it is finished. It is finished. 
Now, those words in the Greek language were the very words that were placed on a legal note where someone had borrowed money that were placed on that note when the note was paid off. And it was written, stamped, something with these words. Now, it's translated, it is finished here in John 19.30, but it meant exactly what Marianne sang about earlier, paid in full, completely satisfied, completely paid off. Our debt of sin was dealt with on the cross of Calvary when Jesus Christ died in our place. It is completely and utterly paid for. We are standing in grace because of what he did in our behalf through faith in him. So he died for sinful men. He became our sacrifice for sin. He reconciled mankind to himself. The temple curtain was rent in two. But there's a second aspect, a second answer to the question, in what way is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ the ultimate good news? First of all, his death made payment for mankind's sin. Secondly, the resurrection, his resurrection, achieved victory over death. Not only did he pay for our sin, but he rose from the dead, showing us that the payment was made, the payment was complete, the victory for our eternal life and our resurrection had been achieved. Let's look at chapter 27, verses 52 and 53 at this point. After he died, and by the way, after he said it is finished, shortly after that, he, he said, Father, unto thy hands I come in by spirit. He literally, if you look at the Greek there in John 19, where, he, where, he, where that's written, it literally says he actively, purposely of his own be, power and behest gave up his life. No one took his life from him. He laid it down. Now, the next thing we read here in Matthew 27 is this. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Let's go to the next verse. And coming out of the graves, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So there was a number, many of the Old Testament saints that were resurrected, not at this point, chronologically in the text. But as it told us earlier, or in this verse actually, after his resurrection, on the third day, on Sunday, after he arose, there were other resurrections. And some of the Old Testament saints appeared to the people there in Jerusalem. This fulfilled the Old Testament type of first fruits. In the Old Testament, the uh, farmers, the folks that raised crops, would bring the first of their harvest to the priests and offer as a sacrifice. It was representative of their whole harvest, which was in the field still, or else in the process of being harvested. Now, these resurrections here were a first fruit of our resurrection. We are the crop that is yet to be harvested. Our day of resurrection will come when Jesus comes back in the air. Even those that have died in Christ, the Bible says, will come with him. And yet a moment later, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, it says, And the dead in Christ shall rise first. 
Their spirits go to be with him, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Our spirits immediately upon death, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, go to be with him. But there is a resurrection coming. On the day of resurrection, our spirits will be reunited. Our bodies will come out of those graves. And those resurrections in Jerusalem, as well as especially Jesus' resurrection, is our guarantee and our promise of God and our assurance of our resurrection. Now that's good news. That's good news. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, a resurrection like unto his resurrection. We will be recognizable. We'll know each other. We'll live eternally in a physical body, an immortal body, but still physical body. We will inhabit a real place on the new earth, in a real city. We will dwell, the new Jerusalem, in a place he has prepared for us. This is our Victory, it comes. This is what he has promised and what he has made possible and made sure by his resurrection. But this benefit only comes to those who place faith in Jesus Christ. Now there are examples here of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, just like there were examples of those who did not. They'll be looked at earlier. Let's begin at verse 27, or chapter 27, verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. This centurion was the Roman officer in charge of the detachment of men that crucified him. And not only was that officer saying this, but even some of the soldiers that crucified him came to faith at this juncture after his crucifixion. See, what could have precipitated that? Well, they just saw the sun go out for three hours. They just experienced an earthquake, and God shook them all real good. They said, you know, there may be something to this story of Jesus Christ. There may be something about those, those stories we heard about the miracles he did and how he brought other people back to life. And they fell to their knees in repentance. Later on in chapter 27 and all the way into chapter 28, we have the story of the women, including Mary Magdalene. We won't take time to read the verses. But they had stood afar off and watched his crucifixion. They never deserted him. They never fled the disciples did. They did not. Then Mary Magdalene and the other women came to the tomb on that Sunday morning to anoint his body and found the tomb empty. And the stone rolled away and an angel there saying, He's risen. You're looking for Jesus. He's not here. And it didn't really, it couldn't, they couldn't really fully comprehend it. And, and, and Mary is weeping. And Jesus speaks to her. We read this in John chapter 20, where she finally recognizes him and clings to him. And he has to finally say, you know, stop holding on to me. I have things to do. I need to go and send to the Father and so forth. They had faith from an early, early time and never, never wavered. The disciples, of course, except for Judas, did the same, although uh, they did stumble, as we learned about Peter last week. But look in chapter 27, if you will, and I, I don't think we do have this on screen, but uh, in chapter 27, again in the Gospel of Matthew, down in verse 
57, it says, And when evening was come, this is before the women came on Sunday and all that, and when the evening, this is Friday evening, when the evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself uh, also had also become a disciple of Jesus. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, and by the way, Nicodemus accompanied him and helped him, and they came and they asked for the body of Jesus, and, and Joseph, who was a rich man, laid Jesus in his own tomb there outside the walls of Jerusalem. I've been to that place, and the most likely place where he was buried. That is an extremely emotional and uh, overwhelming experience to stand there and look at that. The tomb was empty. The soldiers were bribed, as we learn later on in chapter 28, to say, well, you know, while we were asleep, they came and stole the body. Well, if you're asleep, how do you know what happened to the body? And then after the resurrection, when the angel showed up to roll away the stone and, and uh, show Mary and the rest, that it was empty inside, the, the, the soldiers were struck dumb and paralyzed. Yet they were willing to steal for money, lie, and reject him. But thank the Lord for those who had faith. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were members of the Sanhedrin. They were members of that Jewish body that had condemned him and sent him to Pilate to be crucified. Now, we don't know if they were there and protested, or most likely it was all done and they weren't invited. The soldiers that crucified him came to faith. Some of those who condemned him judicially came to faith. Others, like the women and the disciples, maintained real faith. Peter was sifted by the devils we looked at last week, but his faith did not fail. The benefit of his death, which assures us of victory over death, comes to those who believe. But those who do not believe remain under the sentence of death. There was no repentance of Judas or of Pilate or Herod. Many of the residents of the city who stood with the evil religious leaders called for his death, yelled, crucify him, no, no repentance. And this is the bad news. Those who do not place their faith in Jesus Christ are lost forever, condemned for their lack of faith. You say, what is faith? Faith is believing that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Faith is understanding that He is the Messiah, the Promised One, the Christ, the Anointed One, that He is God the Son, that He is the Creator of the universe, the all-powerful and coming King. When Pilate asked Him, are you the King of the Jews? He said, yes! Well, He wasn't at that moment. In fact, He told Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. He didn't mean it wasn't going to exist in this world. He meant it didn't come from this world. It's not of this world. Now, it will exist in this world when he comes back. He is the king. He hasn't sat down on the throne just yet, so to speak. You have to believe that he is God in human flesh. 
You have to believe in who he is. And if you understand who he is, then that faith has got to translate into who you are. For belief, true belief in him will be transforming. The spirit of God will give you a new life and will give you eternal life. And the transformation will mean that you are in a sense born again spiritually. This is what Nicodemus was told in John chapter 3. And sometime between John chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 27 and 8, Nicodemus, as well as Joseph of Arimathea, they understood what that meant. That's why they were prepared for his burial and did what they did. It is by faith. And faith not only means we understand who he was, but we accept his authority because if he is God, we answer to him. If he is the eternal Lord, then we have to obey him and we have to serve him. And any who do not, well, they are not justified. Look at Romans 4.25. Speaking of Christ's death, Paul says, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now the word justification means declared righteous. We are declared or can be declared righteous if we place our faith in Jesus. Our faith means we will be declared righteous because he died and rose from the dead. If he hadn't come out of that grave, there would be no justification. He wouldn't be God and we wouldn't have any salvation. But he did come out of the grave. And when he grows, it's proof positive that you and I can and will have the benefits if our faith is in Jesus Christ. I urge you this morning, if you're here and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would make this your moment, your time. You take this opportunity. Do not reject. Do not walk away. Put your faith squarely in Jesus Christ. That means giving up your life. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, Soft sell it. It means walking away, turning around. Now, you don't have to make yourself better to be saved. You just have to believe in Him. He'll make you better afterwards. But you've got to be willing to let it. You've got to put faith in Him and trust Him. And understand He is your Lord and Savior. It's a very serious question. It's not some light kind of acquiescence or, oh yeah, I believe that sort of thing. It's more than believing historical facts. It's accepting a person who is, has lived a historical life but still alive and is offering you eternal life. I urge you to place your faith in him. I'll give you that opportunity here in a few moments. But let's make this practical for those of us that are believers already. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. The whole of chapter 15 First Corinthians, the subject there is the resurrection, our resurrection, based on his resurrection. At the very end of the, of the chapter, Paul gives us this application. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You want to prove you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. You want to be an effective disciple of Jesus Christ. You want to be true to your faith in Jesus Christ. Then be steadfast. Be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's what Paul's saying to us. Now that's one thing. But here's the here's the really, really good news. Knowing that you're... Labor 
is not in vain in the Lord. No. Every sacrifice we make, every time we're obedient, every time we have to absorb some slight or someone laughs at us because of what we believe, whatever it is, it's never in vain. He will reward us and reward us for all eternity. So what we believe, the resurrection, the reality of it, that changes everything.